Hello, fellow saints, and welcome back to Come Follow Me with Brother T. We are going over Mormon, the Book of Mormon, in the Book of Mormon, chapters 1 through 6, and there are several themes to look at. Number one, the downfall and destruction of wicked people by another group of wicked people. Number two, Mormon's goodness and how he is righteous among so many wicked people. Number three, the purpose of the Book of Mormon. And number four, look for what God has done or will do for the children of Israel, as President Nelson has encouraged us to do. After 200 years of perfect peace and great prosperity since Christ's visit to the children of Israel on the American continent, the people have become prideful and are divided into classes and distinctions once again. And during the following 100 years, secret combinations returned, false churches arose, and wars became a constant. And here is where we find Mormon as a boy, according to chapter 1, verse 2, 10 years old. And he is told of the record by Amaron, who was Amos's brother and the son of Nephi. And the prophet Joseph Smith taught that the word Mormon literally means more good. In chapter 1, verse 3, Amaron calls Mormon a sober child who is quick to observe. And he commands Mormon to find the records hidden in a hill called Shim in the land of Antim when he is old enough. In verse 4, he tells him to just take the plates of Nephi and to record what he sees. Now, there are a bunch of records up there, and we will go over that later in this podcast. When Mormon is 11 years old, his father takes him to the land of Zarahemla. They go down south. And he observes that the whole land is inhabited in verse 7. And he tells us that there was a pretty large war that was started by the Lamanites at about this time. Verses 11 and 12 say, And it came to pass that the Nephites had gathered together a great number of men, even to exceed the number of 30,000. And it came to pass that they did have in the same year a number of battles, in which the Nephites did beat the Lamanites and did slay many of them. And it came to pass that the Lamanites withdrew their design and there was peace settled in the land, and peace did remain for the space of about four years, that there was no bloodshed. But just because the Nephites won, don't think for a second that it was because of their righteousness. In fact, in verse 13 it says, But wickedness did prevail upon the face of the whole land, insomuch that the Lord did take away his beloved disciples, and the work of miracles and of healings did cease because of the iniquity of the people. And there were no gifts from the Lord, and the Holy Ghost did not come upon any because of their wickedness and unbelief. So here you have two very wicked societies, and they're going to battle and war for quite a long time. However, Mormon was righteous. And in verse 15, it says, And I, being 15 years of age, and being somewhat of a sober mind, therefore I was visited of the Lord, and tasted and knew of the goodness of Jesus. Elder Holland summarized Mormon's life and society in this way. He said, The maturing Mormon, by then 15 years of age, stood beyond the sinfulness around him and rose above the despair of his time. Consequently, he was visited of the Lord and tasted and knew of the goodness of Jesus, trying valiantly to preach to his people. But as God occasionally does when those with so much light reject it, Mormon literally had his mouth shut. He was forbidden to preach to a nation that had willfully rebelled against their God. These people had rejected the miracles and messages delivered them by the three translated Nephite disciples, who had now also been silenced in their ministry and been taken from the nation to whom they had been sent. In fact, in verse 17, it talks about how he was forbidden to preach. 
And at this time, because the people are so wicked, the Gadianton robbers have come back. And in addition to their thieving and stealing, the land is cursed and possessions become slippery. And I always find this concept very interesting, these slippery possessions. And I feel like in our age, instead of burying it in the ground, what happens is that the stock market will crash or inflation will go rampant or something to that effect where our whatever we have is completely devalued and or things are easily stolen and easily lost. Verse 19 says, And it came to pass that there were sorceries and witchcrafts and magic, and all the power of the evil one was wrought upon the face of the land, even unto the fulfilling of all the words of Abinadi and also Samuel the Lamanite. President Faust said, It is not good practice to become intrigued by Satan and his mysteries. No good can come from getting close to evil. Like playing with fire, it is too easy to get burned. The only safe course is to keep well distance from him and any of his wicked activities or nefarious practices. The mischief of devil worship, sorcery, casting spells, witchcraft, voodooism, black magic, and all other forms of demonism should be avoided like the plague. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, this is nearly 300 years since Christ visited them, and this is four generations later. Mormon, at the young age of 16, is asked to lead the Nephites to battle against the Lamanites. And the Lamanites are strong at this point, and they are driving the Nephites from city to city, from area to area, and eventually the Nephites are just going to gather into one specific area. The problem is that the whole land is infested with robbers, but the bigger problem is that the Nephites refuse to repent. In fact, in verse 8 it says, But behold, the land was filled with robbers and with Lamanites, and notwithstanding the great destruction which hung over my people, they did not repent of their evil doings. Therefore there was blood and carnage spread throughout all the face of the land, both on the part of the Nephites and also on the part of the Lamanites. And it was one complete revolution throughout all the face of the land. Finally, in verse 9, we read about King Aaron of the Lamanites, and he goes against Mormon with 42,000, and Mormon's 42,000, and Mormon and his people drive them back and preserve their land. Verse 10, Mormon believes that the Nephites are beginning to be humbled because of the thieves and the slippery property and murders and dark arts. And in verse 12, he says, And it came to pass that I, Mormon, saw their lamentation and their mourning and their sorrow before the Lord. My heart did begin to rejoice within me, knowing the mercies and long suffering of the Lord, therefore supposing that he would be merciful unto them, that they would again become a righteous people. See, his hope for his people is so great. He's such a good person. But verse 13, he says, But behold, this was my joy was vain, for their sorrowing was not unto repentance because of the goodness of God, but it was rather the sorrowing of the damned, because the Lord would not always suffer them to take happiness in sin. But let's go back to see how Mormon treated these people who were so wicked, but that he loved in spite of it. President Oaks said, We should all follow the gospel teachings to love our neighbors and avoid contention. Followers of Christ should be examples of civility. We should love all people, be good listeners, and show concern for their sincere beliefs. Though we may disagree, we should not be disagreeable. Our stands and communications on controversial topics should not be contentious. We should be wise in explaining and pursuing our positions and in exercising our influence. 
In doing so, we ask that others not be offended by our sincere religious beliefs and the free exercise of our religion. We encourage all of us to practice the Savior's golden rule, whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. When our positions do not prevail, we should accept unfavorable results graciously and practice civility with our adversaries. Mormon is a great example of this type of behavior. However, let's look at the other side. The people who were lamenting, but they were it was the sorrow of the damned. Elder Neil A. Maxwell, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, noted the contrast between godly sorrow and the sorrowing of the damned. He said, after recognition, real remorse floods the soul. This is a godly sorrow, not merely the sorrow of the world, nor the sorrowing of the damned, when we can no longer take happiness in sin. False remorse, instead, is like fondling our failings. In ritual regret, we mourn our mistakes, but without mending them. And President Benson talked a little bit more about godly sorrow. He said, Godly sorrow is a gift of the Spirit. It is a deep realization that our actions have offended our Father and our God. It is the sharp and keen awareness that our behavior caused the Savior, He who knew no sin, even the greatest of all, to endure agony and suffering. Our sins caused Him to bleed at every pore. This very real mental and spiritual anguish is what the scriptures refer to as having a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Verse 15 says, And it came to pass that my sorrow did return unto me again, and I saw that the day of grace was past with them, both temporally and spiritually, for I saw thousands of them hewn down in open rebellion against their God and heaped up as dung upon the face of the land. And thus, three hundred and forty and four years had passed away. Elder Holland again says, It is at this moment in Nephite history, just under 950 years since it had begun, and just over 300 years since they had been visited by the Son of God himself, that Mormon realized the story was finished. In perhaps the most chilling line he ever wrote, Mormon asserted simply, I saw that the day of grace was passed with them, both temporally and spiritually. His people had learned that most fateful of all lessons, that the Spirit of God will not always strive with man, that it is possible collectively as well as individually to have time run out. The day of repentance can pass, and it had passed for the Nephites. Their numbers were being hewn down in open rebellion against their God. And in a metaphor almost too vivid in its moral commentary, they were being heaped up as dung upon the face of the land. President Spencer W. Kimball described how we today might also remove ourselves from the cleansing grace of repentance. He said, It is true that the great principle of repentance is always available, but for the wicked and rebellious there are serious reservations to this statement. For instance, sin is intensely habit-forming and sometimes moves men to the tragic point of no return. As a transgressor moves deeper and deeper in his sin, and the error is entrenched more deeply, and the will to change is weakened, It becomes increasingly near hopeless, and he skids down and down until either he does not want to climb back or he has lost the power to do so. That's from Miracle of Forgiveness. In verse 18, Mormon makes a full account on the plates of Nephi, but does not give us the full gory details on his abridged record that we are reading right now. And I want to go over again Mormon's faith, an example of how to live in a a righteous world. In verse 19, he says, 
And woe is me because of their wickedness, for my heart has been filled with sorrow because of their wickedness all my days. Nevertheless, I know that I shall be lifted up at the last day. So just to recap a little bit and to go a little bit further beyond, Mormon in chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, it says he was a sober child quick to observe. Verses 15 and 16 reminds us again that he's a sober child, that he was visited of the Lord and tasted new of the goodness of Jesus, and that he was willing to preach unto the people to help them repent. Chapter 2, verse 1 says that he was not only young and large in stature, but he was a leader of the people. In verses 23 and 24, they have been driven into the land of Shem. And it says, And I came to pass that I did speak unto my people and did urge them with great energy that they would stand boldly before the Lamanites and fight for their wives and their children and their houses and their homes. And my words did arouse them somewhat to vigor, insomuch that they did not flee before the Lamanites, but did stand with boldness against them. So he is a leader and he is an inspirational speaker who is good at motivating his troops. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 talks about how he had led his people and now he's trying to get them to repent. He is a missionary-minded person. Verse 12 talks about how much he loves his people. And even more so in verses 17 through 22, it talks about how he loves the people so much and the children of Israel and he understands the plan. And because he understands the plan, he wishes that he could write to everyone and let them know the truth, which in fact... That is what he is doing. Now let's go back to the story. Chapter 2, verse 26. And it came to pass that when they had fled, we did pursue them with our armies and did meet them again and did beat them. Nevertheless, the strength of the Lord was not with us. Yea, we were left to ourselves, that the Spirit of the Lord did not abide in us. Therefore, we had become weak like unto our brethren. Elder Ray H. Wood explained, When a person violates any of God's commandments, if there is no repentance, the Lord withdraws his protective and sustaining influence. When we lose power with God, we know of a certainty that the problem lies within us and not within God. I, the Lord, am bound when you do what I say, but when you do not what I say, you have no promise. Our misdeeds bring despair. They sadden and extinguish the perfect brightness of hope offered by Christ. Without God's help, we are left to ourselves. Well, in verse 27, they regain their lands back. And in verse 28, they settle peace with the Lamanites and the Gadianton robbers. And now we move into chapter 3. And in the beginning of chapter 3, Mormon is allowed to preach again. In verse 2, it says, And it came to pass that the Lord did say unto me, Cry unto this people, Repent ye and come unto me, and be ye baptized, and build up again my church, and ye shall be spared. Unfortunately, he explains in verse 3, And I did cry unto this people, but it was in vain. And they did not realize that it was the Lord that had spared them, and granted unto them a chance for repentance. And behold, they did harden their hearts against the Lord their God. And after ten years, the Lamanites prepare to attack the Nephites, and the Nephites prepare to defend. The Nephites win in the land of desolation, but because of their victories in verses 9 and 10, we read that they had begun to boast and swear vengeance. Elder Neal A. Maxwell cautioned us to recognize Heavenly Father's power instead of our own. He says, Before enjoying the harvests of righteous efforts, let us therefore first acknowledge God's hand. Otherwise, the rationalizations appear, and they include, My power and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth, or we vaunt ourselves as ancient Israel would have done, except for Gideon's deliberately small army, by boasting that mine own hand hath saved me. Touting our own hand makes it doubly hard to confess God's hand in all things. 
In verse 11, Mormon has had enough, and he refuses to lead them. Verse 12 says, Behold, I had led them notwithstanding their wickedness. I had led them many times to battle and had loved them according to the love of God which was in me with all my heart. And my soul had been poured out in prayer unto my God all the day long for them. It's another thing to point out that he prayed for them. Nevertheless, it was without faith because of the hardness of their hearts. When he was the presiding bishop, Bishop Glenn L. Paste admonished us to strive to emulate the love Mormon exhibited. He said, the prophet had Christ-like love for a fallen people. Can we be content with loving less? We must press forward with the pure love of Christ to spread the good news of the gospel. As we do so and fight the war of good against evil, light against darkness, and truth against falsehood, we must not neglect our responsibility of dressing the wounds of those who have fallen in battle. There is no room in the kingdom for fatalism. Verse 14, when they use the Lord's name to swear vengeance, the Lord responds in verse 15, Vengeance is mine and I will repay. And because his people repented not after I had delivered them, behold, they shall be cut off from the face of the earth. In the rest of chapter 3, Mormon takes the time to explain why he is writing this record. In verse 17, he says Gentiles, and that's those of us who've been converted and whose ancestors are mostly from Europe. And he's also writing to the house of Israel. Verse 18, to the ends of the earth and to the 12 tribes. Verse 19, to a remnant or to the modern day Lamanites. Verse 20, he talks about how we will be judged and who will judge us. In verse 21, he commands us to believe and lets us know that the Jews will also know that Jesus is the Christ. Verse 22, he tries to persuade everyone to prepare to be judged of Christ. Elder Bruce R. McConkie explained who will be judging us at the last day. He said, The reality is that there will be a whole hierarchy of judges who, under Christ, shall judge the righteous. He alone shall issue the decrees of damnation for the wicked. The scriptures teach that there will be at least five sources who will take part on Judgment Day. Ourselves, our bishops, scriptures, apostles, and Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, the Nephites go on the offensive. And in verse 4, it says they lose because they gave up their stronghold by going on the offensive. Verse 5 says, But behold, the judgments of God will overtake the wicked, and it is by the wicked that the wicked are punished. For it is the wicked that stir up the hearts of the children of men unto bloodshed. And think about not our day today, how the wicked are punishing the wicked, and how we need to sit back a little bit, not go on the offensive, but stay defensive and protect our homes and our families. Verses 11 and 12 talk about how both sides have become drunk with blood and wickedness. In verse 14, the Lamanites are sacrificing the women and children of the Nephites to their gods. And the Lamanites start to win everything, and they're driving the Nephites to and fro. In verse 23, Mormon goes to Shem and gets all of the records. And Ammaron told Mormon to take the large plates of Nephi from the hill Shem and add to them. Mormon was to leave the rest of the plates, and those rest of the plates are the plates of brass, the small plates of Nephi, and plates of ether. And in the hill Shem, Mormon removes the large plates, he wrote a full account of the activities of his people on them, and used a selected portion of them to create his own condensed and abridged history of the people. And that's what we have now, the Book of Mormon. Later, Mormon returned to the hill Shem and removed all of the plates, the plates of brass, the small plates of Nephi, the plates of ether, and all of the other plates from the hill. And fearing that the Lamanites might destroy the records, Mormon hides the plates again except his abridgment and the small plates of Nephi in the hill Cumorah. 
and these gold plates Mormon gives to his son Moroni. In chapter 5, verse 1, Mormon changes his mind and decides to lead the Nephites as their commander again. I find it interesting that such a wicked people are not only fine with, but actually want to be led by a righteous man. And as long as he's not trying to convert them, they're cool with him. In fact, they love him. Clearly, the wicked recognize the strength of a righteous person, even if they don't want to repent. Verse 2, it's pretty obvious that destruction is imminent, and the Lamanites drive the Nephites again from land to land with great slaughter. Verse 9, Mormon makes an abridgment of all the records. In 10 through 14, he pleads to us, Gentiles who inhabit this land, to take them to the children of Lehi, who are, again, a remnant of the house of Israel. In verses 10 and 11, we are the Gentiles who mourn the destruction of the Nephites. In verse 12, again, the Book of Mormon is written to the remnant, which is the children of Lehi, or the modern-day Lamanites. In verse 14, the Book of Mormon will go to the Jews to convince them that Jesus is the Christ, and to help them return to the land of their inheritance. Now remember, just because the Jews have established the nation of Israel, that doesn't mean that they have gathered into their holy land as of yet. It's not theirs according to the scriptures. In order for it to be theirs, they have to covenant with the Lord once again and live and uphold that covenant with the Lord. Verse 15 gives us the why of the Book of Mormon, and also that the seed of this people may more fully believe his gospel, which shall go forth unto them from the Gentiles. For this people shall be scattered and shall become a dark and filthy and loathsome people beyond the description of that which ever hath been amongst us, yea, even that which hath been among the Lamanites, and this because of their unbelief and idolatry. Verse 16 says, For behold, the Spirit of the Lord hath already ceased to strive with their fathers, and they are without Christ and God in the world, and they are driven about as chaff before the wind. President Harold Bealey explained that the wicked people of Mormon's time had not lost only the Holy Ghost, but the Spirit of Christ from their lives. He said, Mormon described some people, his people, from whom the Spirit of the Lord had departed. And when I read that, it seems clear to me that what he was talking about was not merely the inability to have the companionship or gift of the Holy Ghost, but he was talking of that light of truth to which everyone born into this world is entitled and will never cease to strive with the individual unless he loses it through his own sinning. Verse 19, it talks about how the Gentiles, or our, most of our ancestors, if you're in the United States, will possess the land. Verse 20 talks about how these Gentiles will drive the Lamanites to and fro and scatter them more. Verse 22 talks about how the Gentiles need to repent and help the Lamanites to repent. Verse 23 says, Know ye that ye are in the hands of God? Know ye not that he hath all power, and at his great command the earth shall be rolled together as a scroll? Elder W. Craig Zwick of the Seventy explained the symbolism and blessing suggested by being in God's hand. He said, Hands are one of the symbolically expressive parts of the body. In Hebrew, yad, the most common word for hand, is also used metaphorically to mean power, strength, and might. Thus, hands signify power and strength. To be in the hands of God would suggest that we are not only under his watchful care, but also that we are guarded and protected by his wondrous power. Finally, in verse 24, it says, Therefore repent ye and humble yourselves before him, lest he shall come out in justice against you, lest a remnant of the seed of Jacob shall go forth among you as a lion, 
and tear you in pieces, and there is none to deliver. And I want to share a little conversation that I had with my friend Dan. And Dan proposed the idea that maybe we should be more afraid of the modern-day Lamanites, those from South America, Mexico, south of the border here in the United States, than we should be of China or Russia. I thought this was a very interesting concept. And here it is because of this remnant, which we know is the Lamanites, and how they are going to be as a lion amongst the Gentiles. But the truth is, is that those of us who are converted to the house of Israel or who are part of the house of Israel are as that same lion. And we will go through along with the converted Lamanites and become a lion amongst all of those who are unbelievers. In chapter six, it says that Mormon finishes his records and gathers all of the people to the hill Cumorah for one last battle with the Lamanites. And he hides all of the records except a few plates that he gives to his son Moroni. And he's wounded, it says in verse 10, and falls, but is passed over as if he's dead. And it talks about how tens of thousands of people are destroyed. If you add it all up, it's about 230,000 soldiers. That doesn't include the wives or the children or even any of the Lamanites. And verse 16 through 22 is Mormon's lament for his fallen people. Verse 16 says, And my soul was rent with anguish because of the slain of my people, and I cried, O ye fair ones, how could ye have departed from the ways of the Lord? O ye fair ones, how could ye have rejected that Jesus who stood with open arms to receive you? President Faust said, We long for the ultimate blessing of the atonement to become one with him, to be in his divine presence, to be called individually by name as he warmly welcomes us home with a radiant smile, beckoning us with open arms to be enfolded in his boundless love. How gloriously sublime! His experience will be if we can feel worthy enough to be in his presence. The free gift of his great atoning sacrifice for each of us is the only way we can be exalted enough to stand before him and see him face to face. The overwhelming message of the atonement is the perfect love the Savior has for each and all of us. It is a love which is full of mercy, patience, grace, equity, long-suffering, and above all, forgiving. The evil influence of Satan would destroy any hope we have in overcoming our mistakes. He would have us feel that we are lost and that there is no hope. In contrast, Jesus reaches down to lift us up. Through our repentance and the gift of the atonement, we can prepare to be worthy to stand in his presence. Christ wants to forgive us. He loves us. Brothers and sisters, now is the time to repent. Now is the time to avoid being like the Nephites who were given so much and yet fell so far. To be more like Mormon who loves the people, who serves in spite of the wickedness of the people, who shows forth their love and tries to help them repent and return to the Lord, even if it's in vain. We know who wins in the end. We know that Christ will be the victor. If we are on his side, we will win as well. And I know that to be true, and I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening, and I hope you have enjoyed this podcast. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can reach me at drjaredthomas at gmail.com or text me at 916-412-2136. Thank you, and have a blessed day.